and it's good to be back in the pulpit today to open God's Word together. I live grateful for the competency of the pastors, preachers that filled the pulpit in my absence and was edified by their sermons, to be sure. We find ourselves today in the book of Exodus chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there. Momentarily, I'll be reading from the verses at the end of 5 as well as the verses at the beginning of 7 for context. In a word, today's sermon can be described as patience. Patience, not like being a patient in the hospital, but like having patience with someone. Uh, you might have heard it said, he has the patience of Job. Or you need to have the patience with the process. Patience, 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 they say. The Lord is love. The Lord is patient, it says. And love is patient. If patience is an attribute of love and a fruit of the Spirit, then Spirit-led people need to recognize impatience as a sign of a spiritual problem. Impatience with people. Also, though, impatience with God. Impatience with God's ways and means. Who among us has not ever become impatient with God's timing, even God's timing for redeeming His people. The process seems slow. Who among us has not ever moved from a prayerful lament, which is biblically warranted, to outright complaint that heads of state like Pharaoh and authorities in business and schools and government and even wayward churches refuse to listen to reason truth refuse to acknowledge accepted fact, live insulated from the clear signs of judgment that hurt the people based on their own policies. Who among us complains at God's timing, whether by word or deed, to the point that we've long since stopped living as if God's commission for us as believers is still in play? What is His commission? It's great. It's similar to what Aaron and Moses have in our text today, although with a different audience and a different accent. It's a proclaiming commission. You've heard it before, perhaps, where Jesus told his disciples, go and tell. Not show and tell, for the show has happened. You don't need to conjure up another show. The cross was and is enough. God's mighty act in history to redeem His people is centered on the event of the cross. The great signs and wonders of the Exodus are epic because of the fulfillment in the cross of Christ. Instead of putting on a show or asking for a new sign or a new wonder, we are commissioned to go and tell all the people all the gospel of God baptizing them into local churches, then teaching them to obey all that God has commanded His people. God promises to be with us as we energetically engage in this commission. And even as we register complaints with the things that bug us, that should bug us, we are not to degenerate into an utter spirit of complaint. I wonder if we're going and telling today, and if not, I wonder why we might not be. I wonder if we're demanding another show. I wonder if we've decided to trust in the powers of state to meet our deeper needs, even if we would never say that out loud. I wonder if the commission of God doesn't seem great enough for us in this hour, in this season, in this generation. So if you've become impatient with God's ways and means, you're not alone. Moses was also. Today's text helps you regain patience for the project of God through the troubling process. We're to learn all of this book, but not all of it at once. We're in a process of being discipled, aren't we? We are to tell subsequent followers all that God has commanded us, but not all at once. There is a process, and it requires patience. God is patient with us, 
we can learn to be patient with one another. We can even learn to be patient with ourselves. That's perhaps one of the great impatiences, isn't it? We can learn to be patient back with God when He seems to be delayed in His unfolding plan, which seems to be the case in our text today. It seems as if Moses and Aaron are, are wondering why God hasn't done what He said He was going to do yet. I wonder if we can relate with that even before we read it out loud. I wonder if you can sink into the, the pores of this text for your life through a few of these questions. Why questions? Why has that loved one not come to faith yet? Why does my spouse keep stiff-arming the practice of our faith? Why does my employer seem so disinterested in my living faith? Why don't my kids seem to listen to me teach them the faith? Why don't my parents seek to teach me the faith. I pray today's text will help you regain patience with yourself and with God's unfolding plan. And the very fact that you're still sitting here listening to this message says something about God's exercising extreme patience with you and with me. Please now look at Exodus 6 by looking at the last verses of 5 and the first verses of 7. Today's sermon is simply titled, God's Patient Reassurance. God's Patient Reassurance. Exodus 5.19, this is where the frustrated people of God are forced to make bricks without straw. Same amount of work, but they're supposed to do it with less help in the same amount of time. This is a, an attempt by the head of state to create distance between the people as slaves, and their deliverer, their leader, Moses. And it seems to be working at this point. For the worship of four is now stymied and throttled into the distrust of five, and that disruption runs all the way up the flowchart of command. So listen to, to 519. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Verse 22, now Moses speaks. Moses turns to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, why? Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, I read chapter 6, all 30 verses straight through, but I want to tell you I see the split at verse 11. 1 to 11 shows us God patiently progressing our knowledge of who he is. And then when we look at the genealogy of verse 12 through 30, what you're going to see is God patiently progressing our knowledge of who we are. So that's the split that I see. So I'm going to read it straight away now. Verses 1 to 11 and then 12 to 30 without stopping. Exodus 6, 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and let the people of Israel go out of his land. 
But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Verse 14. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushai, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jacobed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zichri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphon, and Zithri. Zithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Amenadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land, of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my children, the, the, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring, them, and bring out the people of Israel up from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And may God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto all who hear. So we see in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, that God patiently progresses our knowledge of who He is. Why doesn't God do what I want Him to do when I want Him to do it? That's how we led in this sermon. Especially if what I want seems to be His will. For example, to redeem His own people now and to defeat His enemies utterly now. Why does there seem to be a delay between when we want God's will to be done and its execution? Well, we don't know exactly but we have some biblical data toward the answer. Timing certainly belongs to the Lord. Jesus taught us this. For no man knoweth the hour nor the day of the return of the Lord. We are to hasten the day of the Lord's return. We're to pray for that day, but we don't know the hour of the day. And when people seem to know the hour of the day, they actually undermine the very scripture that they claim to interpret, because we don't know. Perhaps our greatest act of disobedience as believers is flittering the time away as if there will always be time for the commission to be fulfilled tomorrow. There won't. When one minute passes, it's past. It's limited, that is, time. You won't get it back. So faith is expressed when you are about the Father's commission, redeeming the time because He has so redeemed you. We do not know why, not now, but when we get a glimpse of the answer for Moses, as he writes Exodus 6 in hindsight, and he does write it in hindsight, for a people now delivered, 
as he writes it, we get a glimpse into the fact that this, this seeming delay, this crisis of faith for Moses, may well be about us learning to trust God in the trouble and become more patient with his processes, even while we're faithfully acting, redeeming the time with his commission. We hope that you'll be re-energized by this text to tell the gospel in your time of trouble, the time you live in between God's promise and God's complete fulfillment, the time when the wicked scoff and the imprudent still reign. Moses had already gone to the elders, if you go back and read chapter 4. Aaron had already spoken all the words and done signs before them. If you take this to be a second episode, and I do, I don't think it's just a restatement of the former episode in chapter 4. The people had already inaugurated worship, chapter 4, verse 31. But this inauguration was not fully consummated, for chapter 5 records this disruption in a chain of trust. The people to the leaders, and then the leaders to Moses, and then finally, and most efficiently stated, Moses to God. He is frustrated with a lack of action by God. And I find that to be interesting to understanding this text, and I hope that you do too. Is God mad that Moses is frustrated with the timing of the execution of his stated plan? Is God mad at Moses? We can't know for sure, but here's what, here's what we know from the biblical data. God is mad at Moses when he flakes with his family and he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And that's the whole Gershom episode at the end of chapter 4 that Pastor Kurt preached about. I won't go back and recite that, but he's upset with him. His anger is kindled, it says, against Moses. God's anger is kindled against Moses whenever he persistently claims that his abilities aren't good enough. I have uncircumcised lips. I'm not able, I'm not able, I'm not able. Perhaps he's mad again with this statement in this chapter, I have uncircumcised lips. It's stated and restated around the genealogy. I know Moses seems to have been disinterested in the project as an older man. Now, remember, he's 80. He's been off in the wilderness. He's been down at Midian. He heard from God, and now he has to go back, and he's like, I don't want to go. Send somebody else. And it seems as if Aaron is actually, and we'll get further into this in the second half of this sermon, but Aaron is actually an answer to prayer for him because he's worried about his speech patterns. He doesn't think that he can speak eloquently enough to be effective with proclaiming God's message, especially to the head of state. And so he's given this sort of answer to prayer, but Moses keeps pushing back and pushing back. Whatever it is that God is frustrated with Moses about in this process of discipling Moses for this task of leading his people, it doesn't seem that he's outright angry at Moses for saying, how long, O Lord? We've seen that in, in Psalms, haven't we? We've seen that in Revelation. How long, O Lord? How long does this trouble befall me? How, how long will you let the wicked seem to reign? How long, how long, how long? doesn't seem mad about that. It doesn't seem like the flow of a text as he gets upset with us when we bring to him our frustrations. And even our complaints, as long as our spirit doesn't become a nagging, complaining spirit to the neglect of doing what he's commissioned us to do. That's the rub, I think. Moses is wondering. And to Moses' credit... If you'd like to give him some, he seems to have known that God can handle it. He turns to God. That's the actual language of a text in 522. Moses turns to the Lord and says, Why have you done this? Why have you let this evil befall us? Why this trouble of bricks without straw? Why did you even send me? I told you I didn't want to go. I'm inferring. Verse 23 of chapter 5. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil. He's troubled your people. You haven't delivered the people at all. Maybe you feel that way in your own life. You haven't done what you said you were going to do yet at all. It's still, we're still, I feel like we're not three steps forward and two steps back. It's like we're three steps forward and eight steps back. I'm so frustrated. And I want you to consider that perhaps God wants to hear from you on that front in your own life through your prayers. To say, God, I don't get it. And I want you to notice how God responds to Moses's, well, his complaint. He comes with a bunch of I messages. In fact, one theologian counted that there, was, there is 17 I's in eight verses. I, 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 I. You may have noticed the emphasis on that pronoun as I read through the text for you. Uh, I, 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 I. He, he takes responsibility for the messaging, and he does say this is the time. Like The time has come. 
There is no more delay. You, you think I've delayed, but actually this is the time, and I am going to use you. But there's going to be this process of this fulfillment of this prophecy that's still going to be uncomfortable for you. This is, I'm inferring this. And you're, you need to be fortified for the fact that you're going to get impatient at times, and your people more so are going to get impatient at times because you're leading them in your own impatience. But he takes his responsibility. And I think that's, that's something because God... He does take responsibility for every aspect of our redemption. For every aspect of your discipleship. Right down to helping you learn patience. He takes responsibility for every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that will be exhibited in your life on the day of the Lord. For sin will not reign in heaven. Light hath no fellowship with darkness. But God is patient with Moses by further explaining to him part of what he's already explained. I think the dialogue shifts from Moses talking to the Lord to the Lord talking to Moses. Look at 6 1 in your print Bible if you've got it open, or, or perhaps on the screen if, it's, if we're able to stay with it. I'm going to rifle through some of these verses as God is patiently progressing your knowledge of who he is in verses 1 through 11. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now the time's come. You think it should have already come, but it's actually come. And I'm going to use my strong hand, my strength, and I'm going to drive the people out of the land of Egypt after these hundreds and hundreds of years. This head of state will want to exodus you from Egypt when this process culminates in the death of his firstborn. He's going to want you out. I'm doing something here, but it's going to require more interactions with Pharaoh than just one. I know you're feeling the pinch right now, folks, but you need to see that you can trust me. So trust me. I know that you've all got a slave mentality. You've been treated harshly, and you're broken. But I am not harsh to you, and I am the one that puts broken people back together. Trust me. The message of verse 2, perhaps, forms the basis of this trust. And leadership is always about trust, isn't it? If you don't trust the ones that lead you, the whole process breaks down. Really, procedure never makes up for the perception of I can't trust this person. The question that the people are always asking of those that have the position of leadership in their lives is, can I trust this person? And so God is not just powerful in position, but God is personal. He isn't just transcendent, but he's also imminent. This is our God. Tim Chester points out the prolificness of I am the Lord in chapter 6 and about a dozen times going forward in the book of Exodus. I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am, I am, I am the Lord. Over 400 years ago, I appeared to some sojourners. They were sojourning then too. And they're still alive today in me, is the implication. He appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know from the fuller canon of Revelation that these are alive in the day of Jesus just as much as they were alive in the day of Moses, just as much as the patriarchs and the faith are alive in our day, the dead in Christ shall rise. The dead in Christ are not dead. The dead in Christ live. And what you need to understand is, is that those that know the Lord when they die know what the song says in the lyric, it is not death to die. In many ways, we are being prepared for our own deaths by realizing that our father's in the faith that have died, are alive. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead. You can trust me. It's as if he's saying, you can trust me. They knew me as powerful but personal also. But I'm actually expanding on that now for you. As Revelation progresses, I'm telling you more. That's what chapter 6, verse 3 is indicating when it says, My name, the Lord, I did not make known to them. They may well have known the name, the Lord. It's recorded in Genesis as such. Yahweh, the personal name for God, for His people. But it's as if God is saying to Moses in the time of the Exodus in the 15th century B.C., I am making myself known more fully to you. It is good for us to know more of God. One said, you think it is willpower that you need to be patient, to be faithful. 
But actually, it is not your own willpower. What you need is to know more of God. That's how patience becomes a fruit in your life. Because patience is a fruit of God, the Spirit. God takes the initiative here and He says, I'm making myself known more fully. I'm your God. I'm Yahweh. You need to understand in the time of your trouble, I'm with you. I sense your pain. I understand what you're going through. It's not lost on me. Be patient as I am patient with you. Look at verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Now that word remember is interesting now, isn't it? So there's another reassurance here in the first part of this text. I have been with my people. My people live after death. But God remembers. You may be familiar with this language pattern from other places in the Scripture where He promises to remember His people's sins no more. Isn't that a comforting promise from God? That does not mean that God has a case of disease or dementia, which we mortals deal with. God does not not remember actions. God does not remember your sins, rather, in the sense of counting them against you. And that is gloriously good news for the redeemed of the Lord, isn't it? Aren't you glad He doesn't remember your sins in the sense of counting them against you? Conversely, here God promises He remembered His covenant relationship with His people. Meaning in the positive, I remember my relationship with people. I don't forget it. I credit it to them. The personal God of the Hebrews is determined to deliver his firstborn son, Israel, from this cruel head of state in Egypt in this time, that is Pharaoh. So not just negatively because he's heard their prayers of groaning, but also positively because you here are with him in relationship. The language almost seems in chapter 6 verse 7, almost marriagely. If you look at chapter 6 verse 7, I will take you to be my people. I, Matthew, take thee, Melissa, to be my lawfully wedded wife. It almost seems relational, doesn't it? Look at how he's comforting and reassuring his people through their leaders in a time when they have become exasperated, embarrassed, impatient, outsmarted by their counterpart. Sort of like... This is God's sort of I do to his people again and again that he says. And it's to a people whose lives are filled with harshness and who are broken. Now, I, I was thinking about, about that. If you fast forward to verse 9, I'll share something with you. As I was preparing this sermon this week, I was really meditating devotionally on verse 9. Look at that. It says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of what? They're broken and they've been treated harsh. Man, that still plays today, doesn't it? Some of you are broken because you've been treated harshly. Now, a few thoughts on this devotionally, but I was thinking about why people don't listen and don't trust. I think sometimes they don't listen to the leader, in this case Moses, because he only recently listened to God himself. This is a message for those of you that have influence in people's lives and that have positions of leadership in your home or in your workplace, we become, once we've experienced God's great patience with us, sometimes we become impatient with people that don't get it right now. Have you ever been that way? Like, God, show me this thing. Why don't you get it? You know, like, I've got the fruit of the spirit of patience now, but I'm going to be impatient with you. you know, I think there's something to that. Moses, they didn't listen to Moses, but Moses hadn't been listening to God too well until now. I think there's something to that. We need to be, I won't say equal part because we're not God, but we need to be similarly patient with the people that we're trying to teach and disciple as God has been with us. We need to know more of God, right? It's not just willpower. I'm going to be patient with you grudgingly. You know, it's not that. It's, it's God has been so patient with us. And so it's not just that we can, but we want to be patient with people. This is the flow of the parable of the unmerciful servant. If you want to read it like in Matthew 18. 
Uh, the, it proved that God didn't have it in his heart because he couldn't show mercy after he'd been forgiven so much. We need this fruit of the spirit of patience. God shows it to us. But sometimes people don't listen to your counsel and your hopeful promises because of the way they've been treated, even when you're being somewhat patient with them. Don't jump to the conclusion that harshness fixes a person who's been treated harshly. There's an old saying, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Some messages are better caught than taught. Some messages are taught through the experience of relationship. I, I can't tell you how many times in the church, and I, I don't mean to just embellish, like it's hundreds of times, I don't know, but I mean it's dozens of times for sure, where a person just looked like they were stuck in their faith. Like they just weren't going anywhere. And I'm not picking on any of you, okay? It's, I don't have like a list of names in mind. Like I wrote 14 of you. It's not that. It's just you know it if it's you. And you're, it's not an exact science, but you've been stuck. And I've been stuck. And you didn't get unstuck because somebody rattled you most of the time. Like, get in line, buddy. You know, maybe, but most of the time not. You got unstuck because people walked with you. They were patient with you. They showed you stuff. They didn't look at you, but they walked beside you. They said, hey, come on. I can pull you along here until you get it figured out. They were patient with you in the time of trouble. Sometimes a person won't listen to you because of their broken spirit. It's not because your logic isn't sound or your faith isn't genuine. It's because they've been broken. They've been treated harshly. So what do you do? You know, don't take it personally. Don't take it personally when a person's broken. Pray for them. Like, sincerely pray for them. Not just sort of the trite stuff, but like pray that the Lord would, would help. Stay convictional in the things that matter, for sure. We're not saying a lack of church discipline. We're not undermining that doctrine. Follow God in front of them and even with them. Expect hardship and celebrate the blessings when a person that's been treated harshly comes through. I don't mean to advocate forever just not, not confronting a person in their sin, but I do think there's a category here this text helps us with to be patient with broken people because God is patient with us. And further, in your counsel with people, use the I, think of the way God uses I messages in 6, 1 to 11. How his comfort for them is knowing more of himself rather than willpower. I, I, think, I think there's some good stuff there in Genesis 6, 1 to 11, as God patiently progresses our knowledge of, of who he is. Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? I mean, we sing it, but it plays right here. Verse 6 is important, too. I ran past it while I go to get to verse 9, but, but look at verse 6. There's a word here, redeem, which is the same Hebrew word that's used in Ruth to describe how Boaz is a kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Listen to verse 6 to catch the context of how it's used here. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. I'll be a kinsman redeemer to you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment, salvation coming through judgment. What, what a word, redeem you. I, I, a kinsman redeemer, the, the concept Hebraically would be a, a family member that you, you really can't do anything for them. You're, you're in a pinch. And that family member is going to redeem you through no direct merit of your own, and you're going to be saved or redeemed by the action of another. That, that is a, that's salvation, isn't it? Like we are redeemed through the action of our God, through no merit of our own. He is our, our kinsman redeemer. This language, it, plays, it certainly plays into the deliverance of, from their physical slavery, but it plays into the fuller revelation in the gospel of Christ where we are delivered from our spiritual slavery, where we are delivered from our sin, and we are granted a relationship that by knowing more of God, we would progress in patience with ourselves and one another and with God when we don't know why. There's a classic passage I've referenced no less than three times in the last six months from this pulpit in Revelation. And it stuck with me when I preached through Revelation. It's in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, if you want to read it fuller sometime. There's no reason to pull it up on the screen because I'm not going to read it right. I'm just going to give you the context. As I recall, the context is where the people of God are asking God, how much longer? Like, how much longer are the people going to suffer? It's, it's like, how much longer are your people on earth going to suffer? How much longer are they going to suffer? How much longer will they be troubled? And the response is, the cup isn't full yet. It's not time yet. And so as I'm trying to give you answers to 
why God has not delivered on some of his promises directly and precisely chronologically at the time that you want it to happen yet. I don't mean to say that I know. Sometimes the answer is just like Revelation 6. It's not time yet. It's like the Lord said, we don't know the hour of the day of his return. But there are some indications in this text and other texts as to why there seems to be a delay. I'll take you to another place in the Bible that really helps us with this concept. Think of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is patient, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But why is the Lord patient with His people? He doesn't want us to perish. Why is the Lord patient with His people? He wants us to come to repentance. And we might not immediately come to repentance. He's been patient with you. If you weren't saved the very first time you heard Scripture read or the very first time the gospel was presented to you, did not God exercise patience in you coming to living faith and repentance of your sin? Amen? So how much more so should we not understand that God desires us to be patient as we are seeking for people to repent of their sin, that, as Acts says, refreshing might come over your souls. Some of you don't have refreshing in your soul because you refuse to repent. If you are curmudgeonly unrepentant as a Christian, you're missing out on refreshing in your soul. Acts 3 has a lot of information on this subject, but what had happened is the unbelievers were actually told, you're the reason Jesus died on the cross. You need to repent of your sin that refreshing might come over your soul. And they got all mad and people were in prison and lives were threatened and all that. But we're the reason Jesus went to the cross, aren't we? He was hung up for our sin. And so it plays with believers too that we need to ongoingly repent that refreshing might come over our souls. I want you to know more of God today because through knowing more of God, you'll see His patience with you and you'll see that fruit come out in your life. And I think you'll actually be more inclined to fulfill the great commission of going and telling the gospel to people because you will believe that He's doing something through these means. You'll believe it. You believe it mightily. He has redeemed you. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's go to our second point. God patiently progresses our knowledge of who we are. And not just of who He is. I am, I am, I am, I will, I will, I will. I will, I will, I am, I am, I have, I have, I will. It's not just those reassurances, but He also patiently progresses our knowledge of who we are. The doctrine of man. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 12. I'm sorry, not Genesis, Exodus. It says, Go, I'm sorry, verse 12, my eyes. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. So the, the commission's been restated to Moses. Moses said to the Lord in protest, they're not going to listen to me. He makes an interesting argument here, really, from the lesser to the greater. He says, look, if my own clan's not even going to listen to me, how are them people out there going to listen to me? <laughs> like if, if, if the church, to put it in today's language, if the church won't even listen to me, how's anybody out there going to listen to me? It's, it's actually logical, but it's flawed because it, it doesn't consider the power of God. Like it's very possible that you could have people not quite on board in here and yet people could totally wholesale receive the message of the gospel out there, to use sort of a parallel. But Moses' protest about his inability is well chronicled so far in Exodus. If, if, look at, at verse, not just verse 12, but look down at verse 30, because it brackets the genealogy section. Verse 30 says almost the exact same thing. Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How's Pharaoh going to listen to me? And I don't know, maybe God's still mad at him for this statement. He seems to just keep repeating it. But he's answered his prayer. He's giving him Aaron. And that's exactly the point of the genealogy. Don't get lost in all the proper nouns. Although the proper nouns do carry some meaning. They do have connotation. But the, the big flashing light in that section of genealogy is the Levites are going to be the priests. The Levites are going to be the priests. Aaron's line is going to have priests. We're going to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant. Here it comes. Here it comes. It's this big flashing light. And especially, in fact, the light that Exodus was written after the fact, this is probably being a message of encouragement to people, perhaps in their desert wanderings, to say, hey, it may seem like we're in a quagmire here. It may seem like this thing is delayed. I need you to understand that God is still God, that the I am has delivered us, that he's going to get us to the promised land. He's going to get our kinfolk, at least, to the promised land. If you'll trust in him, you'll have life forever in him. 
We're going to be okay. It's almost as if this is written, and this is a shorter genealogy than what you'll find in Numbers written later. So it's almost like this little fragment of a genealogy just wants to stick in here. God's using Aaron too. He's using the Levitical line too, which is interesting. So without rereading all the proper nouns, let's just make a, let's draw a couple of, of points from this within this point of learning about ourselves. For examples, just, just a few. So you have the shrinking lifespans in this text. Like as the written revelation is beginning to hatch, you move from this 137 years and Moses doesn't live that long. So in God's economy of years, lifespans are shrinking. Notice as well how God chooses to mention here Reuben and Simeon and Levi. And that's it. Why Reuben, Simeon, and Levi? I don't know exactly why, but the others are not mentioned directly, although they're mentioned in chapter 1 of Exodus. If you go back and read Exodus 1, 1 to 5, there's a longer listing. Why just these three? I choose to think of it as a story of redemption, of mercy, of sheer mercy. Do you remember what Simeon and Levi did to the Shechemites? Talk about castaways. How about Reuben? I mean, contrast in this text the sexual sin of Reuben, his father's concubine, with the zeal of Phineas for sexual purity. Bam! Talk about a story of redemption. It almost blips on the map as much as in the genealogy of the New Testament when Rahab the prostitute is mentioned in the salvation history of the Lord. It's fantastic. This text gives us a glimpse into how God not only redeems people, but uses them for His purposes over the course of their troubled and sometimes frustrated lives. It also speaks to how God's answered Moses' prayer to give him his three-year-older biological brother, big brother, to be his mouthpiece for him. And it emphasizes Aaron and the Levitical line by listing him first in the order of proper nouns twice in this text that I caught. If you look at verse 20 in the middle, it says, She bore him Aaron and Moses. So here's Aaron first. Then if you look at verse 26, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said. Well, why doesn't he say Moses and Aaron? That's the common ring. The emphasis of the genealogy is Aaron. It's the Levites. And for sure, God uses failed people to do his work, and he brings them along. We see that all over Scripture, don't we? And then he doesn't always use the oldest. Look at David. Look at Joshua. I'm sorry, look at Joseph, I meant to say. He doesn't always use the oldest. He doesn't always seem to use the brightest. He uses people according to his sovereign plan. He doesn't use the most capable I mean, the the apostles were listed as unschooled, ordinary men. They didn't rock the rabbinical training of the first century. They didn't have the great degrees. God used them, didn't he? He used them. God patiently progresses our knowledge not only of who he is, but who we are. And who we are is important because we can think too much of ourselves that by our willpower we'll somehow be patient and bear the fruit of the Spirit in our Christian lives. Or differently, by our eloquence. You know, I mean, if you're so confident about your ability to go out and share the gospel with people, then I worry about you. <laughs> because God's not going to save people because your eloquence. He's going to save people according to His sovereign plan using means. And if you're underconfident about your ability to share the gospel of Christ with someone else, yeah, go ahead and brush up on your scriptural knowledge, but maybe you're exactly the kind of humble person God wants to use to share the gospel with somebody. Stammering and stuttering and all over it, but they, they, they sense your heart, and God uses the humble. He gives grace to the humble. He rejects the pride, Scripture says. Repentance is a powerful thing. I wonder if you need to repent of some sin today, of some presumption, of some impatience. Repentance is a, a powerful thing. Repent that real refreshing might come over your soul. This world order promises help for your guilty conscience through therapeutic means alone, but those are lies. That's calling God's messengers liars. They're like when Pharaoh said in chapter 5, verse 9, pay no attention to their lying words. Repentance is the only means God uses to bring lasting refreshment over your soul because even repentance is a fruit of faith. You must confess the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Dress the wound today. Don't dress the wound to earn your salvation. Dress the wound because of your salvation, because of the I am. Notice even the ordering of Exodus 6. We focus on who God is, then we focus on who we are and what He's done for us, and it is a beautiful thing. And then He goes on to use some people, and there's tough times, but He uses them. But consider, in the New Covenant, consider your genealogy. Because the concern here 
in the new covenant is not your genealogy physically, biologically. The concern is your spiritual genealogy by faith. Differently, adoption is the language used in the New Testament for your being included in Christ's family. So consider like verses, just two passages real quick, if we can cue them. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive. Receive adoption. Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, and that goes for male and female believers, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts crying, Father, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? God considered you a son not by natural birth, but by adoption spiritually. And even the Levitical line of priests was to point toward a royal priesthood. And this adoption is by grace through faith. Consider another text, Romans 8, 14-17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons. Sonship. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We're so prone to fall back into fear, aren't we? God, you're so, you're so, it's so slow. This thing's not happening fast enough. I'm not getting what I, what I know that you want me to have fast enough. Blah, blah, blah. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, adopted into the genealogy, adopted into the family, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's not just that the church testifies to the validity of your testimony by the fruit of the Spirit of your life. It's not just that the church says that your profession is valid and in keeping with the text, but you have an internal witness as well where the Spirit bears witness that you're a child of God. And you know how important that reassurance is because knowing who you are in Christ is very important. 1 John 5 says that we might know that we are sons of God. I think this last stanza of Romans 8.17 is apt for our main point today. Listen to how it reads. If you're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, (laughs) joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. Can you imagine a, a greater assurance than the promise of Scripture? And God never lies that every promise of God has its yes in Christ, and you are a fellow heir in the genealogy of Christ. Is that not good news? Differently, that's good news, isn't it? Hallelujah, what a Savior. But provided what? This is so important. It's mosaic in terms of the way that Exodus 5 and 6 flows into 7 before we get into the signs and wonders and the process of God making himself known, even for judgment against people like heads of state like Pharaoh and rebels. Some will be saved in the process, but he's making his case against people as they reject him in process as Moses and Aaron bear witness to Yahweh. So as heirs of God, we are heirs provided we suffer with him. Provided we suffer with him. Provided we suffer with him. Well, what's this life about? It's a lot of suffering, isn't it? Trouble. Oh, there's, there's certainly hills, but there's valleys, isn't there? We suffer with him. We're heirs of Christ. We're going to be glorified with him. Saved to sin no more. But this really is a life of faith that we live in, as we say so many times in here and from this pulpit. You might want to underline that part of that verse, provided we suffer with him. Because Moses needed fortified for the journey to lead the people that had been treated harshly and were broken. Part of God putting them back together is to teach them, just like Gethsemane, to stay awake, to stay on commission, when you can't see exactly how the fruit's going to come, provided you suffer filling up the afflictions of Christ. A couple thoughts and then I'll close. One quote that's just too helpful not to share. The reason that we can't imagine God's patience with us as His Son is we think He's like us, and He's not. He's, we think of Him like us, how we are to ourselves and how we are to others, but He's not like that. It's true that you are impatient in thought and deed with yourself and with others, but God is not impatient with you. God has shown great patience to you in this move toward your holiness, toward your sanctification. 
Consider Thomas Watson's A Body of Divinity. Listen to this quote. See the amazing love of God in making us his sons. The wonder of God's love in adopting us appears in this, that God should adopt us when he had a son of his own. Men adopt because they want children and desire to have some to bear their name. But God adopted us when he had a son of his own, the Lord Jesus. We needed a father, but he did not need sons. To give us Christ is to give to give us Christ is more than if God had given us all the world. For God can make more worlds, but he has no more Christs to give. Joint heirs with Christ. Won't you receive him? Put your trust in him. Sometimes, as Philip Ryken said, God allows trouble to continue in order to teach us to be patient to teach us to be patient. The Exodus didn't commence right then. John Calvin said it like this, It was indeed possible for God to overwhelm Pharaoh at once by a single nod so that he should even fall down dead at the very sight of Moses. But he chose more clearly to lay open his power. For if Pharaoh had either voluntarily yielded or had been overcome without effort, the glory of the victory would not have been so illustrious. God wishes to accustom his servants in all ages to patience, lest they should faint in their minds if he does not immediately answer their prayers and at every moment relieve them from their distresses. I'm so thankful God is patient to progress us in the knowledge of who he is and who we are for our good and his glory. Contented person, he'll unsettle you to get you here. Broken person, he'll pursue you to get you there. Young person, he'll guide you to get you there. Older person, he'll stay with you to get you all the way home. If you're a middle-aged person, remember he is ever with you in the grind of protecting providing for your family and teaching your young ones the faith. Sinful person, this gentle disposition is the shape of divine love. His discipline is for your good, for God is love to not leave you in your sin. So, God is love. Love is patient. Isn't he kind? Let's pray. Father, you demonstrate patience toward us.